welcome to This Week Explained, the independent geopolitical podcast that tackles all the major global events. We're glad that you're here as we bring you all the insights and analysis on what's happening around the world. As always, I'm Tiana, and I'm here with my co-host, Kervin, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get to what's on the agenda this week, Kervin. All right, it's a Russia-heavy episode, so we haven't done that in a while. But they've been doing a lot of things. So we'll start with Russia-Ukraine. Uh, the grain deal negotiations have stalled with between uh, well, it's between Russia and Ukraine, but Turkey's kind of mediating that. We're going to talk uh, the latest on peace negotiations in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then we'll head over to Africa, talk about how the Russian military had, was seen in Africa leading up to recent coups and what that means for the continent of Africa. Also, we'll talk uh, how Russian state television made a threat of a Russian nuclear strike on the United States because, you know, they can just say those things. TV stations can do that now. Yeah. In Russia, they can. Well. As long as they talk about this person, Putin, who uh, may have a little meeting lined up with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. He's got to be desperate. Yes. And we will talk that desperation. Okay. Uh, after all of the, the Russia talk, we're going to get in depth. So we last week we talked about China's new map. Um, and so I wanted to go in depth on, you know, what that map is. Uh, it's what was called the Dash 9. And now uh, geopolitical analysts have dubbed this one the Dash 10 map. We'll get into how it's changed and what the implications are for that. And then I was uh, I was at the Defense News Conference, and there was a theme that emerged through that conference that could affect or could have geopolitical ramifications in the future. We'll get right. We'll you talk. be talking about that though? Yeah, it was all in class. Everything's in class. Okay. Um, it was all over, actually, all over the news. The Hill dot com reported on it. The Pentagon News Channel was reporting on it. Oh. Well, let's get started. What's the latest in Ukraine? Uh, well, Ukrainian forces have continued their counteroffensive in Bakhmut and western Zaporizhia. And they're starting to make gains in western Zaporizhia, where the nuclear power plant is. On the flip side, Russian forces conducted a large-scale missile and drone strike against Ukraine, one of which, so one of the drone strikes hit a market in Ukraine. Uh, We don't have all the details on it, but it looks to have killed about 20 civilians. Uh, A lot of condemnation coming from the Ukrainian people about that happening and wanting to push back more against Russia. That attack actually coincided with a meeting between uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. So what was the main purpose of Secretary Blinken's visit? The main intent was to show the the United States has unwavering support for Ukraine, and he also announced a new military aid package. Um, I believe that one was $175 million, so we're not in the billions anymore, lessening that military aid. Uh, but it does, so that announcement and trying to show unwavering support does come after a lot of back and forth in Congress and the U.S. House of Representatives about why are we continuing U.S. support to Ukraine? Well, we both know that didn't go over well in Russia. I mean, I'm sure that has been part of the holdup in getting a deal agreed to on Ukraine's grain exports. Are there any updates on Russia's grain deal opposition? 
Yeah, so Russian President Vladimir Putin said uh, that the deal allowing Ukraine to export grain safely through the Black Sea will not be restored until the West, particularly the United States, meets Russia's demands on its own agricultural exports. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. Maybe some tit for tat there. Um, mm-hmm. Now, according to the Russian government, shipping and insurance restrictions through the sanctions that they've been hit with have hurt its mm-hmm. own agricultural trade, even though this past year it has shipped a record amount of wheat. So there's, oh. you know, the facts don't align with what Russia's saying, which That's is nice. par for the course. Now, the Ukrainian government and Western allies like the United States says that actually the demands from Russia are just a ploy to advance Russia's own interests. Obviously. Right. So obvious. So what about Putin's talks with the Turkish president Erdogan on reviving the grain deal? Yeah. Putin's recent remarks did dash any hope that those talks with Erdogan could revive an agreement. Uh, Russia in July refused to extend the grain deal while Putin reiterated those complaints about its own exports and then telling reporters that if those commitments were honored, if the U.S. just did what Russia asked, right. Russia would return to the deal. And it would be within a few days, guys. <laughs> well, did Erdogan express any hope for a breakthrough? Yeah, he did. He uh, he said he hoped that a breakthrough could come soon. Um, he said Turkey and the United Nations, which they both brokered the original grain deal with uh, between Russia and Ukraine, have put together a new package of proposals to unblock the issue. I do want to note that Russia right now is finalizing an agreement to provide free grain to six African countries, as well as shipping cheap grain to Turkey so that they can process it and deliver it to poor countries. So on the surface, that looks like Russia's really that trying to nice. help out. Right. It does. But, you know, it's it's something that we're going to keep an eye on as Russia continues to position themselves as key allies on the continent of Africa. I want to go back to what you said about Secretary Blinken's visit to Ukraine while the Biden administration and other allies have promised to support Ukraine as long as it takes. The countries bordering Russia and Belarus argue that international partners need to lay out a path for a decisive victory for Kiev. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, the the situation there is very complex, as we all know. And there are Valid arguments from both sides. It's true that Ukraine is making slow but significant progress against Russia. But there are concerns that battles within Washington, D.C. over the budget in 2024. Uh, There's also Republican infighting over military and economic aid for Kiev. And and that happened even during the Republican presidential debate. Um, So so that we saw that infighting very publicly. There's also a creeping negativity among the U.S. public towards ongoing support. And that gives this impression of waning American support, which then increases pressure for the Ukrainians to negotiate with Russia. That's what Russia is actually really hoping for, that that continues. So this is a situation that definitely plays directly into to Russians' information operation plans. Some have argued that a peace deal would be a victory for Putin and could increase the threat on NATO's borders. What would be your opinion on that? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's a lot of argument in that. In, in, in fact, peace talks and a ceasefire would give Putin the motivation you know, to move forward with other invasions. It's also going to free up resources to turn 
toward threatening other border states, uh, such as uh, Russian-occupied territories of Georgia and Moldova. Then adding to that, it would help Putin exert even greater political influence globally. He can go to his people and say, look, I brokered a peace deal. Everything is, is great now. So it's not only a military threat, but a diplomatic one, too. Uh, this is exactly what supporters of continued support for Ukraine have said from the beginning, that this support isn't just about Ukraine. It's about those U.S. allies across Europe. So you got Poland and, and the Baltic countries of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. They're on heightened alert over potential threats on their borders with Russia and Belarus. So it's it's actually just a much broader security situation. So what do you think should be the way forward on this issue? I, I believe that only Ukraine can decide when the moment is right to enter peace negotiations. That even though it's, it's their right to decide, it does need to be mediated internationally to ensure that any peace deal is just and it doesn't compromise the territorial integrity or security of Ukraine. But with that, other countries can decide to stop giving Ukraine the support that they previously had. So it's kind of a, a balance there. Now, if left unchecked in this invasion of Ukraine, countries like Georgia and Moldova are 100% less safe with Putin running the show. You would really put that at 100%? Un uh, if left unchecked, yeah, those, those countries are 100% less safe. Their security that's, situation I know, is, that's pretty bold statement before it, like anything's I'm, happened yet, you know? Right, yeah, nothing's happened, but... Putin hasn't shut his mouth up about what his intentions are. Yeah. That's to bring the Soviet Union back. But you're thinking even after you like if Ukraine did come to the negotiation table and they did broker a peace deal. And I don't know what I don't know what in this hypothetical uh, situation they're agreeing to. But let's say the the war is over in Ukraine. So you think they would immediately just dive into attacking Moldova? Yes. Yeah, so if, if the situation goes like this, a peace deal is brokered, it's going to have to be because Ukraine gave up. At this point in the invasion, Ukraine gave up certain land to Russia. At, okay. At that point, Russia consolidates all forces in the location on the border of Moldova. So they have Transnistria there. Or Georgia or... Or Georgia. Georgia. Just... Well, those are the two that are coming in Poland. Yeah. Those that's another country that they're kind of eyeing. Yeah. And, and Poland, I see as sort of the last the last straw to fall. Because Poland is not going to go down easy. They're, they're <laughs> not. And they're also a NATO country. So that means an attack on Poland brings all attack of NATO. On NATO. Yeah. Moldova doesn't have those protections. And they, they're right. also certain parts of Moldova are being inundated with pro-Russian government officials. Right. Yeah. So so that is how I see that play. All right. Well, what can you tell us about the recent report that Russian military forces were seen in countries like Niger and Mali days before a coup took place? That's a little suspicious. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, it's very significant discovery. So according to the analytics company Torchlight AI, they were able to detect patterns and identify key interactions between Russian actors and African government officials before and after the coups occurred in those African countries. So this obviously suggests a level of coordination and involvement 
that backs up what we've discussed multiple times on the podcast. Russia is playing an active role in regime change on the continent of Africa. And what about the implications for the United States and other Western powers? Why should they be concerned about Russia's increased involvement in Africa? Well, the the Niger coup especially has significant ramifications, and that's because of U.S. counterterrorism operations in Africa. So it not only destabilizes the region, but it gives terror networks access to more resources and finances, allowing them to take aggressive actions across the globe. It seems to me that advancements in technology and analytics gives the world more tools to uncover all of these supposedly covert activities. Mm -hmm. So how can this kind of data analysis contribute to our understanding of geopolitical dynamics in the future? And I like how you framed it with formerly covert activities, because before all of this, you know, Russia... It wouldn't have been noticed. Exactly. No one no one would have known except for maybe, you know, U.S. intel community, and that stuff doesn't get pushed out. Now we have data analysis, especially when combined with artificial intelligence, which can provide valuable insights into what you said, those covert actions. That was unheard of just a few decades ago, maybe even just a few years ago. We would have never thought that possible. So by utilizing these data sets, and then tracking behavioral patterns, analysts can identify irregularities and then potentially expose Russian influence campaigns. And that's much like what happened leading up to the invasion in 2022. So it honestly advances our ability just as a as a global population and civilians to make sense of complex global events. And that helps improve policy decisions across the globe. And it also counteracts various disinformation campaigns. Will it help improve <laughs> policy decisions, Carmen? Or are those still p- people getting paid by big businesses? As I always say, if they're listening to this, we have some great policies for you. To, but, uh, we're, just, we're just kidding. We're kidding. Anyways, continuing the Russia conversation, it looks as if more Russian government officials are talking about nuclear use. Can you tell me about the recent nuclear threat against the U.S. by a freaking television station? <laughs> Which, honestly, yeah, that's a Russian government official at, at this point. So, well, I guess you're, yeah, I guess you're right. State-run state television. Okay. Um, so this comes from a, uh, a very well-known Russian propagandist, if you're in oh, Russia. Obviously. And he yeah. warned that the U.S. could be in danger of a Russian missile attack if it misbehaves in its support of Ukraine. What a choice of words. I know, right? Um, it's not an actual... And that's some translation. Well, oh. it's it's translation, so... Okay. I don't know so Russian. might be lost in translation. Okay. All right, cool. It could be. Um, but what's... What's really worrisome about this is that it comes as Russia has put its Sarmat strategic missile system on combat duty, uh, which has the ability to fire nuclear weapons. And they warned that it would launch a preventative limited strike against targets in the U.S. in response to any perceived threats. So what was the reasoning behind this particular threat? Or (laughs) what did this individual take issue with? So it's honestly in regards to the recent attacks on Crimea. We know Crimea's to Russians, Crimea is Russian land. This was always the worry when it became evident that Ukraine wasn't going to just sit back and defend itself. It was now going to take the fight to Russia. And that starts with right. Crimea. 
<laughs> they want it back. But but as we know, Putin has been given the green light to use tactical nuclear weapons on Ukraine if he feels that there's a threat to the Russian state. So the one yeah, to the U.S. come law, right? Right. Yeah. He just so that was. You're right. So I believe June of 2022, they updated their nuclear use or first use clause. Mm-hmm. So just as you said, that that was put in there. Um, now, the, the warning to the U.S. comes as a measure to prevent more aid to Ukraine. So in a U.S. They, sorry, if they dropped a nuclear bomb on us because we gave aid to Ukraine, they need to be dropping bombs on France and every other country that has aided Ukraine. Right. Yes. And a lot of times with these propagandists, where they say the U.S. and and they really mean it's like a blanket. All- yeah. Generalization. Okay. And then the the reverse is true. Sometimes they'll just say the West and what they really mean is US policy. Just everything West yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah, it's all about who they're speaking to and, and the kind of language they want to use. Right. Um but for this particular instance, the that T V propagandist had said that any US provided weaponry could be seen as the US being involved in the war if it starts to attack. So is North Korea going to be considered a part of the war since they're asking for help from North Korea? Tiana, that is an ally to the state of Russia. They are not part of the war. They are just doing their duty for the global south. I just, all this openly contradictory, like hypocritical crap, it's just annoying that people some people are not picking up on this yet even though it's become more obvious and it gets frustrating and it gets frustrating on all sides whenever you know pointing the finger at someone and being hypocritical like like russia has been doing um like china has been doing and in some respects has been and and in some respects it's the united states has done yeah we're not gonna act like we have not Right. Let's. You want to talk about regime change? We can talk all day about U.S. You know, the CIA being having a hand in regime change on the continent of Africa. Right. So right. not gonna be hypocritical about that. Well, no. as we say, leave everybody alone. Let everybody live their lives. Let everybody live their life. You. Now, I will say, um, for this, I don't think it's a smart. It's it's not the smartest tactic by Russia. Right. To even say as a as a scare tactic this sort of <laughs> nuclear sable sable sorry, saber rattling that's yeah. been going on. Um they've actually been a lot more successful promoting other pro Russian narratives. And that's like we talked about last week, going with unwitting Western officials and trying to build a relationship with them. I think that if Russia wants to be successful, they need to continue to do that so that those U.S. politicians continue to question the support to Ukraine. Yeah, I do feel as though the nuclear talk actually does more harm to Russia's goals than just doing what they've done for years, which is, you know, cultivate relationships with various Western politicians to promote Russian narratives. Mm -hmm. So the conversation has gone from nuclear use to cultivating political relationships. We'd be remiss to not start... The Russia-North Korea conversation. 
Yep. The talk of the past two weeks has been North Korea building their relationship with Russia, as seen by Kim Jong-un's beautiful, massive, huge picture <laughs> of Putin in the hall of one of his government buildings. I don't know where it was. I know it wasn't the state mansion or anything, but he had a huge picture of him. So the talk, like I said, has been about Korea building their relationship with Russia. And after we discussed this last week, several media outlets reported on a possible meeting between Kim Jong-un and Putin. So, do you have any insight on what this meeting could be about? I mean, I have a general idea. I mean, I can speculate all day, but... <laughs> See, I would say if you uh, if you listened to the podcast last Friday, when it came out, you were the first to kind of see this or hear about this. Because then on this week, on Monday, people started reporting on the possible meeting between the two leaders. It was obvious. It was not... I don't know what I was going <laughs> to say... It was just obvious what the game plan was from the yeah, get-go. It definitely. was not something being hidden very well. Yep, and that's how we're able to find it, because they don't hide it so well. And if uh, I can figure it out, you are really doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're cultivating quite the uh, <laughs> algorithm of news. It's just my brain. I, I know people, and I know people who have power. Oh, yeah. And and yeah. they do exactly There's other what motivations. There's other motivations. So so first, this is a very significant development, right? Yeah, this possible meeting with Putin would be Kim's first with a foreign leader since the borders were closed in January of 2020 because of COVID. Right now, U.S. officials have suspected North Korea of already providing Russia with war supplies. That's... But that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they've only. It's only been suspected. Nothing has come out that that has actually happened. Um, now, North Korean weapons, they're basically a copycat of Soviet, Soviet era weaponry. So it's not like if they do provide it, these are significant upgrades to Russia's armament and, and right. supplies. It right. just means they're going to add more ammunition to Russia's military. As with anything in geopolitics, there has to be some sort of quid pro quo. So, is Kim Jong-un openly asking for anything in return? No, like I said, I haven't seen any public announcements of sending the weapons to Russia. Mm -hmm. So, I haven't heard or I haven't found any public statements to what you just asked, openly asking for something in return. Um, with the possibility that this... If they do actually give Russia weapons, we're going to see more sanctions on North Korea. Right. So that's why I don't think you're going to see even the admission that an arms transfer is being discussed. So it's of all course. speculation. Right. But it is no secret North Korea has severe economic difficulties. And Kim would likely seek things like food and energy from Russia in exchange it would be what's called a weapons for food aid deal. So you give us food, or Kim says, you give my family food, and yeah. we'll give you weapons. Yeah, you they, give my family food. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Kim's also going to highlight its expanding relations with Moscow as a sign that the country is overcoming its years of isolation. He could promote that to the people, and he would want Russia to add that to the list of narratives from the Kremlin. So how close do you see the relationship between Russia and North Korea getting? 
Well, it's it's getting pretty close right now, but it's still too early to predict what Kim's diplomacy could produce beyond like continuing a show of defiance towards the United States, which falls in because it's two huge egos yeah. trying to battle it out for superiority. I mean, right now it seems like they're all they're both on an even keel, but that's usually how these things start. But eventually, one of them is going to want to assert themselves. Definitely. And it's not going to be interesting. <laughs> and yeah, and there's there's some intelligence that shows Russia and North Korea are actually pondering a bilateral military exercise. And they also want to be part of a trilateral exercise with China. And that would be. Yeah, bet they yeah. would. It's you know, not that stupid, I don't think. <laughs> we'll see. You know, North Korea is the wild card. So, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like it's always They're shooting funny. for the stars. Right. <laughs> It's kind of like Dennis and Mac, and it's always sunny. They're like, what? They're Russia and China. And then Charlie is North Korea. He's like, I'm a wild card. Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> I love um, that show. Yeah, and it's it's actually a new season now. we got to watch that. But um, getting back to the geopolitical portion of it, so that okay. trilateral exercise is going to be a direct counter to the recent U.S., South Korea, and Japan trilateral exercise. That's what they're looking for. Well, do you have any insight on how the U.S., South Korea, and Japan would react to a trilateral trilateral exercise? Yeah, so let's start with the fact that the U.S. has already expressed concern over reports of this Russia-North Korea agreement and possible nuclear cooperation. So that's the main concern in the region, that North Korea gains more access to nuclear weapons from Russia. And with that said, the U.S. could respond to the, uh, I think the, what's more dangerous is that trilateral training exercise, because then you add China into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the U.S. could respond by continuing to strengthen its alliances and partnerships in the region. They need to be doing that to deter China anyway. Uh, I, I also think what the U.S. should do is increase their information sharing with those partners in the region. Mm-hmm. And then... You've got to strengthen the ballistic missile defense cooperation, especially with South Korea and Japan. So those are the most likely to be attacked by, let's say, a tactical nuclear weapon in the region. My opinion of the situation is that what the U.S. will do is uh, do more talk of sanctions. And then you and I know that that's just worked so much. Yeah, but we're just going to keep doing it. Maybe these will help them. Right. But isn't China trying to step back from their relationship with Russia? Or was that just last week they were just testing? Well, so, so the new map came out, right? We're going to talk about that. It had yeah. land from Russia. So it did look like, oh, China's going to step back from that. Yeah. But kind of what's coming out of the, uh, of the CCP um, is that China did that because they know Russia can't do anything to them because they support Russia so much in this invasion of Ukraine. Wow. So they're they're not taking a step back from their relations. They are they're leaning in. Leaning in as the leader of those. Yeah. Countries. They're like, I'm going to take back this territory that belonged to us a long time ago. Yeah. You can't say anything because you did it. Yeah. And you also can't say anything because you need our help. We are... They are obviously the most um, uh, monetarily sound country that yeah. is backing them. So, 
Makes sense. So more sanctions for those guys. More sanctions for all these people. (laughs) But anyways, it's not like the sanctions on Russia stopped the invasion of Ukraine. So I don't know. I always still keep trying to place more sanctions on these countries. But we are, what, like 18 months into the, quote, special military operation? Yeah, this little brief special military operation. Right, just to get our land back. Yeah. I think this is a nice spot to talk more about that new Chinese map now, since we mentioned it two seconds ago. We'll actually talk about it now. And we discussed it last week. Can you go more in depth on what that map means on a geopolitical scale? Yeah, so so let's start with what it's called. So the, the there's an original map. It's called the Dash 9 map. It's a map that set uh, had a set of line segments that accompanies claims of the People's Republic of China or the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, in the South China Sea. The nine dash line represents the maximum extent of Chinese historical claims within the South China Sea. What happened here, the new map added a 10th dash around Taiwan. It also encompassed parts of the exclusive economic zones of the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Brunei. Wow. So it's a significant change. And I want to reiterate, it's now being called the Dash 10. So there's a 10th dash that's put in there. So this new map is the Dash 10 is notably or noticeably broader than the official map that China submitted to the UN in 2009, the Dash 9 map. It includes the entirety of an island that Russia and China agreed to split in a 2005 agreement, not to mention the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh. So is China going to submit this map to the UN? No, no, I I do not see them sending this to the UN. What it does... It it, shows their wishful thinking. It highlights what they want to do. Yeah, which why would they put that out before they've even done anything? Why would they let us know what their plans are? Like, all the countries that are included within their borders now that do not want to be in their borders, they know they need to stand up and take notice, you know? But yeah, I think some of that would... was China didn't expect it to cause this much of an uproar. How? They literally are taking territories from other countries. So the, so yeah, so the map was put on a Chinese agricultural site, website. Yeah, and that's that what part. That's what gets me thinking. They didn't think anyone would really care. Oh, this is just a, you know, all government. Yeah. So we're so is it just showing like their old the old boundaries of the country, the old borders, or no, it was it was like a cultural map showing old borders. That's a little different than them putting out a map saying these are the, um parts of the countries that we are going to take back eventually. Oh, no. It's, I, I'm sorry if I misspoke. It's an agriculture. Chinese Agri- government agriculture map. Okay. okay. So it's it's not a highly viewed website, but okay. we have a ton of open source analysts that have nothing else to do, nothing better right. to do. This is the stuff that they live for, yeah. finding something like this, because this is crazy. And obviously... The international response has been one of condemnation towards China, right? Yeah, so China's neighbors were very quick to protest the map. Yeah, uh, hey, man. Right? They were like, they they cited international law. 
you can't do this. There are laws mm-hmm. against this. Uh, some even canceled a planned visit to China in protest. I'm sure now. they're heartbroken. Right. I'm sure they are. Uh, I'm sure they will publicly say that they are and mm-hmm. condemn those people. Now, we give all sides of the story on this podcast. That's what I hope we're known for. So I'm going to say China's foreign ministry emphasized that this the nature of this map was routine in its release, and they called for concerned parties to view it in sort of an objective light. Not a, This isn't actually what we believe. Be- well, then why was it on there? And if it was just a map that, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. Why would why wasn't it included before on the agricultural map if it was just something that right. they... Right. This this is all about narratives and they got yeah. caught red handed posting right. this map. And they don't want to openly admit, oh yeah, yeah, we messed up, buddy. Right. Oops. So now we gotta backtrack a little bit. Well, it's not working because I'm still mad for those countries. Yeah. But anyways, Let's be rational as the PLA continues to prepare to invade Taiwan. Right. Let's be rational, okay? Something in me says the concerned parties will not view it in an objective or rational light. Quote, objective in rational light. Because why should they? Their land, their territories are under the borders of China in this map. Yeah. And they've never done that before. They definitely won't. You're know 100% correct. And you're, you're correct. China knows what they're doing. Uh-huh. Um, but I would I want to go out again, as I always say, I want to caution any country against increasing their reliance on China at this moment. Yeah. Because China's kind of shown its hand by, especially with the, well, let's get back to the long settled Russian territory from 2005. Right. The island that they split. Yep. Now, they did that as we said, knowing full well that Russia can do little to protest. Because then China would say, oh yeah, but you did it to Ukraine, so how is it different the way that you did it? Because you took military action? Okay, then we're going to take military action. That could be the process they can go through. Um, I would say that China's other neighbors outside of Russia should ensure that they are never in a similar position. They got to work to free themselves from China's what I consider coercive influence in the region. Right. Well, that's good advice for those countries. But now you were present at the Defense News Conference this week. Was there anything that caught your attention in the conference that our audience should know about that is completely open yep. source and not? <laughs> I So um, it, was, it was funny because they did lunch. And as we're eating lunch, the... Uh, um, you know, Assistant Secretary of Defense does the keynote speech, and well, you're shoveling, well, shoveling steak in your gullet. <laughs> exactly. Oh. You heard oh. clink, 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 clink all through the keynote, and yeah. she was talking about some incredible things, and, and she kind of broke news about a new drone system, uh, replicator, that they are working on, and so that was just quite confusing to me as I was trying to listen, uh, but. I want to get to two phrases that really piqued my interest during the conference. First, the word of the day to me was deterrence. So there's a lot of conversation about the Indo-Pacific, a lot of conversation about China's plans to invade Taiwan. So they're not even speaking about it in a 
hypothetical that like they are pretty sure this is going to happen? So, okay. It depends on who's talking. Okay. Now, the Assistant Secretary of Defense said, and um, I don't have the quote right in front of me, so I will paraphrase what she said. Okay. She said that China's invasion of Taiwan is not a certainty. Okay. And that's why this this term deterrence really piqued my interest. Because every time a uh, government official, I think the, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense was there. There was a couple of other uh, political figures, and they always brought up China with, in, in Tokyo, it's all talk about what the U.S. military is doing, and mm-hmm. they said deterrence. It is not a certainty that China is going to invade Taiwan, and so if there's not a certainty that that's going to happen, we need to be on the forefront to deter that from happening. Okay. So, like I said, a lot of questions about what the military is doing to prepare for possible possible conflict mm-hmm. in the region. But the answer is okay. always reverted back to deterring China from aggressive actions on Taiwan. Well, did they offer up any ways to achieve this besides sanctions? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, surprisingly, I'm glad you said sanctions because that's what I would have thought. But um, yeah. they were very heavy on, on details. We had a couple of, uh, so it four star, two four-star Marines and two four-star Air Force uh, officers. And like I said, they were, they were very heavy on the details. They It was very clear from listening to them talk that the U.S., I want to, just want to put this out right now, the U.S. will support Taiwan in a conflict with China. That was very evident at the conference. But that was one of the methods of deterrence. We need to be public that we are going to support Taiwan in the conflict, and hopefully that deters so it would let Xi know that the U.S. isn't going to back down, and it could go a long way in preventing more aggressive actions from Xi. But to do that, the U.S. military has to show that it would be capable of actually repelling an attack from the PLA, from the People's Liberation Army. And do you have any insight on how the U.S. military is working to increase its capabilities instead of cutting budgets? Yeah, and that brings me to the next phrase Okay. from the conference. Okay. Um, so after deterrence, it was small, cheap, and many, M-A-N-Y. So small, cheap, and a lot. Uh, so what does that mean? So, okay, you, you're going to give another blank stare when I do this because the Army and, you know, the, the DOD has loves their acronyms and they just say a whole bunch of words and it's like a word salad. So get ready for a word salad. Okay. It's it's part of an initiative called All Domain Attritable Autonomy. So that's A D A two. Wait, why is it two? Two A's. Oh, it's so dumb. <laughs> oh God. Okay, so I ask you again, what does this mean? So we gotta focus on two words. Um attritable. Attritable. That sounds like a made up word. I mean I know it's not, but it's, it sounds if you put it into your Word document, it will come up as a made-up word. Okay. But it, it means disposable. just means you can dispose of it e- easily. So, soldiers. so <laughs> that was one of the comments from the Marine uh, Four Star. Bless him. It was, no longer should Marines be disposable, attritable. I, I appreciate that. I agree. And the other word 
We got to focus. Military on. person should be considered. Military personnel should be considered a trainable. Yeah, it's it's deplorable. Yeah. yeah. To okay. to bring up another word. Um, but w- let's talk about autonomy. Okay. And so that's a word that is is a, sounds like a real word because it is a real word, and uh, it won't come up with little squiggly red lines when you're writing it in a report. Okay. And it just basically means the system can do what it needs without having to constantly be told to do that. So, okay. um, you know, like a, when you put the plane on autopilot, mm-hmm. it's basically autonomous. Okay. Now, the, the Deputy Secretary of Defense I was talking about, or the Assistant Secretary of Defense, that's Kathleen Hicks, who was given the keynote speech. Uh, she called During the, their steak. Right. As I was eating my steak and had my ears. Slop, your sloppy Sloppy steak. steaks. <laughs> uh, I did not get to do sloppy steaks. They would not allow it. Yeah, they, they did stop me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if y'all don't understand what we're talking about. But if you do, we should be friends. Yeah. Email the show. Email We'd the love show. to have you on. Uh, so what she said was that these systems will be harder to plan for, harder to hit, and harder to beat than those of, you know, its competitors, the MQ-9. Yeah, that sounds good. So what she really means is these are going to be a bunch of cheap, self-sufficient systems that we don't care about if they get destroyed because we can just go out and make some more. Not a $50 million freaking... um... Yeah, it's something that can fill our landfills a lot faster. Right. And we probably should... has a lot of parts that need like special recycling. And shoot off into space. Oh my gosh. So how does this cheap crap deter China? <laughs> of course they got the they're like the answer is we're gonna go cheaper. We're gonna be even cheaper. Like how that does I, not I love that because typically what? the government's like, We need to spend more money on this. We need to spend yeah, more money still... on but they still hire the cheapest manufacturers, yes. and the, and then the manufacturers pump up the prices. Yes. and they're like, yeah, that sounds about right. So now let's eight hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars for this ballpoint pen, and we need a billion of them. And you can't sell it back; you just no, have to just throw it away. It. Yeah. So but you can't sell it. After all of that talk of. How in- okay. how, so, how... So how does this cheap crap <laughs> help deter China? Sorry, we keep going off on tangents. Uh, I mean, we should. These are conversations we should be having within the government. No one else does, but we have it here between you and me. We don't um, know if no one else has these conversations. I'm sure there are plenty of people who feel the same way. They just don't have any way to. We just have people to entire political system of people who can't remember what happened yesterday. Because they're too old. Yep. Did you see that Mitch and Joe are now like, you can't have it, you know, <laughs> one way or the other. Either, when, like, he's old too. Why, why do I have to leave? You're the one who's having, like, yeah. episodes. And then we are conferences. sitting, we're sitting here as, as civilians in the United States going, yes, you're right. Both of you should be gone. Yeah, both of you should be gone. Like, both so, of you, like. So let's work on that in 2024, guys. Yeah. But right now we're going to talk about how this is going to help deter China. (laughs) Deter China. All right. So it it helps the U.S. overcome um, the PLA's main advantage. 
and that's called anti-access area denial, A2AD. So the uh, the deterrent to A2AD is ADA2. See how that see how that goes. But that A2AD, the anti-access area denial, gives the the PLA air superiority in the region. So let's say a war kicks off. This is the first war since the Vietnam War, I would say, early stages of the Vietnam War, where we didn't have air superiority in the country. So what what the U.S. is trying to do is have a swarm of drones. That that's basically what these new systems would be. It's called a replicator. So like bugs? Yeah. Annoying little bugs. tiny little, little tiny drones flying. Tiny? Little and tiny what are they gonna, uh what do they do? Just annoy so people? There's so many that um they could overwhelm China's systems, taking away that air superiority. Oh, like like their defense system won't know which drone to attack because there's so many kind of things. Yeah. It's just going to okay. be like all over the place. They'll try to fire missiles at it and hit just a few. But hey, they only cost 20 bucks. So let's send a couple thousand more. Is it swallows that, um, you know, kind of form clouds of birds when they all fly? Oh, yeah. And all like, is it kind of like that? Sort a of lot, thing? a lot like that. And they like would they be. got this idea from Marvel because I feel like I've seen something like this in one of the Marvel. Well, what it, re- it, what it reminds me of is Ender's Game, oh, where yeah, the aliens yeah, kind of do that. They yeah. just, sw- there's just huge swarms, and that's how they always defeat, you know. Well, humans. they don't always defeat. Spoiler alerts. <laughs> okay, the end. Yeah. That's all we're going to say about it. That's now, a really good book. If you haven't read the, those books, those Scott Orson card books are wonderful. Very good. I'm not, somebody, I'm not someone who likes sci-fi very much. Very rarely do I like sci-fi. Like, I'm very particular. But when I like it, I like it. <laughs> yeah. And you might be saying, what is a sci-fi book being talked about on basically a military podcast? Well, it is part a of- A military movie, basically. It is very much a military-style book movie. Um, and it's it's required reading for people at the Naval Academy. So, there you go. Okay. All right. Now, back and to- Yeah. Back to- the deterring of of basically what what needs to be deterred is President Xi Jinping, right? Right. So if Xi doesn't see the ability to achieve air dominance, he could actually delay plans for the invasion or just not invade altogether. Or come up with his own stupid little bug drones, <laughs> which you know he would do. He could, like, and, right, and he could say, this. cheaper, dumber, more. Yeah. <laughs> more. Yeah. Definitely be more. Um, so I think that's like the real hope is that they would help deter that future invasion. Um, right. I was very impressed with the deterrence conversation. I think that's how yeah. the discussion should be framed. I know right. we see it. Not like we're going to go in and murder everybody kind yeah. of thing. It's yeah. like, hey, let's... Promoting let's, violence. Let's have this not happen. You know. Yeah, we don't want this to happen. We're not warmongers. All right, put your money yeah. where your mouth is. Okay, don't do it. Yeah. And so I think that that impressed me a lot. Uh, okay. And that's, I could see that coming from like Secretary of Defense or something like that. But when it comes from four-star generals within the U.S. military, yeah. you know that's what they're planning. Right. Um, And, and it's something that I think we're going to talk about a lot in the future, the deterrence. And 
uh, we talked about this before, those open source intelligence accounts that were so great at highlighting what Russia was doing leading up to the invasion. I hope they continue to, to speak out and they start to call out more aggressive actions from the People's Liberation Army. Well, that's something that we should all hopefully get behind. We yes. don't want any more violence on this planet. We just want to live our lives. If we get to shut down this podcast because everything is chill, that would be glorious. Greatest day of my life. For Greatest day. Hopefully those kinds of actions can affect change in the future and all the little buggy drones will do what they are what they're hoping they do, and we can save ourselves from what would be an extremely devastating conflict. But thank you. Kervin, is that all you have for us this week? That's it for me, unless you wanted to say anything or add anything or mention where we'll be. Do you want to mention? I think you want to mention it. So, oh, also, I do, I do want to say thank you to our listeners who made it all the way to the end here because I know we kind of... W- went off on several different tangents so thank you for sticking with us there was a conclusion eventually the true heroes the true heroes are listeners so i mean go ahead go ahead honey go ahead go ahead i will say not all heroes wear capes but all of our listeners are heroes thank you okay and we will be (laughs) we will be at the caverns in tennessee to see uh, quite a few bands that I enjoy, one of which has a podcast, mm-hmm. Songs and Stories. That's the band from Emory, mm-hmm. or the band of Emory. We will be at Tennessee is for Lovers Fest this Saturday. So if you're listening and you're also a listener of Songs and Stories, um, please come we'll up to there. us. Yeah. We'll be there. We'd and love we'll to say hi. Two out of our three kids, because one of our children had adult things they had to do. We have adult children. Ugh. We're not even adults. Ugh. We're adult yeah. children. Yeah, we are adult children. <laughs> we are adult children with adult children, yes. for sure. But yeah, I'm yeah. very excited for the Tennessee is for Lovers Fest. And I'll say once again, we'd love to talk to anybody that uh, listens to the podcast. And, and Tiana is just like speechless right now. Because she's so excited to meet everybody. Or she's Anyways. upset that I'm dragging her to a festival. I'm not, no, I'm not upset. You shut your mouth hole. <laughs> like, shut your mouth hole. So is there anything else that you want to add? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Thank you. You're good? We're good? Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening to our humble little geopolitical podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. We like talking. I mean, you can hear us. We don't know how to set it up. <laughs> if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakwind Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there. <laughs>